Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. Grab your Bible, open up Exodus chapter 20. Man, wasn't that special? That was pretty neat, wasn't it? Come on, church. That was a bunch of kiddos, and they did good. All right. So here's what we're going to do today, okay? Today, we're, we're not going to take a deep dive looking at each specific commandment. But what we're going to try to do this week, before we jump into uh, a deep dive, is we're going to... Um, kind of take a 10,000-foot view, uh, a look at the Ten Commandments, maybe a way that we've not looked at the Ten Commandments, and ask a handful of questions. So why would God give them? What's their purpose? Um, What do they reveal about God? Those kinds of questions are what we're going to look at today. And so today, as we look at them, we're not going to be walking verse by verse through the passage, but we're going to be looking at some principles And there will be scriptures on the screen that kind of uh, uh, support those principles through the rest of the scriptures, okay? So remember where we are. Exodus chapter 19, Exodus chapter 19, consecrate yourselves. Remember, last week we looked at this people that God's calling up to a mountain, and before He is sending them out on this commission, this mission that He has given them to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a treasured possession, before He does that, He is calling them to Himself. Just like in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus did with the disciples. He calls them to Himself and then sends them out as apostles. He's doing the same thing. This idea of consecration was preparing themselves to meet with the Lord and to be useful on His mission. And He says, wash your clothes. You have some Egypt to get off of you, and you need to leave that in Egypt. And then He says, set limits, because I'm holy, and you cannot come into my holiness as you are sinful. And He uh, even says, stay away from a woman. Don't even tempt yourself to sin. Don't make yourself unclean in any way, shape, or form because I'm coming to meet with you. I'm coming to meet with you. Now, here's what I want you to see as we come to this place in Exodus chapter 20. The Ten Commandments are a way that God is revealing Himself to His people. Okay, so we have seen all of of the book of Exodus thus far, or God is revealing His power and His amazing ability to redeem them. He has these uh, miracles that He does called the plagues, and God rescues His people in miraculous ways. But just like Moses, in Exodus chapter 3, God called Moses to the mountain and said, Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. Let me tell you who I am. The same thing is true with God's people here, that God is calling them out to the mountain and He is revealing Himself, His holiness to His people because His people need to know His character. 
So he calls them to the mountain. Look at verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, verse 2, I am the Lord your God. Now he uses two words or two names to define himself. In verse 1, he says, it says, God spoke all these words. That is the name Elohim. Elohim is all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 when God reveals himself as creator. This word Elohim means mighty one, powerful, exceedingly great. And so the creator is speaking to them and he is the mighty one. He is powerful. He is exceedingly great. And in verse 2, it changes terminology. I am the Lord, your God. Now, the word Lord, in some of your versions, might be in all capital letters. And it's revealing the, the name, the covenant name given by God to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. This is the way you're going to know me. I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3, you'll see a theme there also. In chapter 1, in chapter 2, God reveals himself as Elohim. And in chapter 3, when God begins to have this relationship with his people, what we see is the name, the title changes, is Yahweh. And so this Yahweh is not just a creator, a mighty one, a powerful God, but I am the Lord your Redeemer, the one who has brought you out of Egypt into relationship. Okay? So you see these two ideas. He is Creator and He is Redeemer. He is one who is uh, off, uh, extremely distant and powerful. There is none like Him. He, no one can hold a candle to God, Elohim, but He's also Yahweh, the one who comes for us, the one who walks with us, the one that we know, the one that redeems us, the one that came into our slavery, redeemed us from slavery, and now is taking us to the promised land. He wants us to know him in both ways, creator and redeemer. And that's why Jesus taught us how to pray, our Father, which art in heaven. We see both of those ideas right there at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, the nearness of God, the relation with God, who, which art in heaven. He is outstanding in character and power, and there's none like Him. Our Father in heaven. And so at the heart, at the heart of what God is doing in Exodus chapter 20, in what is known as the covenant at Sinai, is God is making this covenant that he's making with his people, the heart of that is a unique relationship between the creator God and those that he has redeemed. And these commandments were teaching Israel a lot about who God is and how the people Israel might live in covenant relationship with him. Okay, that's what we see. That's what we see. Okay, so this was a sign to Israel and to the nations, that since Yahweh is their creator and their redeemer, that He alone has ultimate authority in their life. He alone determines the standard by which every creature would be judged. And the Ten Commandments underline God's uniqueness and supreme moral authority over all creation. Now, 
let's just be honest. Let's take a step back and let's look at our culture. And let's talk about how at the heart of our culture is the desire for each individual to determine what is right and what is wrong. Are you with me? I mean, our, our culture has just lost their minds over this idea. What God is teaching them is, is that if you're going to define what's right and wrong, good and evil, the definition itself has to come from outside of you. These definitions of good and evil, uh, right and wrong, cannot be subjective. They must be objective. Subjective means they come from within you. You get to, to determine what is right and wrong based on your perception of the world. And God says, if you're my people, I am the authority and I get to declare what's right and wrong. Are you with me, church? Here, our culture has this subjective definition of good and evil. It, well, it's dependent on what you feel to be true. Is that true for you? Well, great. Well, that's not true for me, but this is true for me. And that's dependent on feelings, emotions, perception of the world, my upbringing in life. But feelings change. Feelings change. Therefore, the definition of good and evil could change if it's based on your feelings. Upbringings differ. And so if good and evil are based on your upbringing, what if I didn't have the same upbringing that you did? That means that my definition of good and evil could differ from your definition of good and evil based on upbringing. There's got to be a moral absolute somewhere. An ultimate authority somewhere that's outside of humanity. Are you with me, church? When we define good, we have to ask the question, what sets the standard of good? How do you know what good is? There's got to be a definition of good and a definition of evil. And it can't be humanity. It can't be happiness. Well, if it makes you happy, it can't be all that bad, can it? Of course it can. Right? It can't be pleasure. When we try to discover what is best for humanity, isn't it funny that if we get a group of Americans right here and we say, what is the best thing for America? Isn't it interesting even how we can disagree over that? We can do the same thing with church. What's the best thing for our church? We can disagree over what that might be. What the ultimate best is. Therefore, it's got to come from somewhere outside of us. And God is revealing himself as the source of ultimate authority. Why? Because God alone is good. Because God alone is holy. It doesn't matter what I think, my sinful nature and your sinful nature will taint your thoughts about good and evil. They will. So there's got to be something outside of humanity that defines what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong, what is just and unjust for us because we are too sinful to define that for ourselves. Morality in our culture changes with the culture, doesn't it? Isn't it funny? I use this illustration. How many of you remember the I Love Lucy show? You watched it, okay? I used to watch it as a kid. Reruns, of course, but uh, sorry for that. I apologize. That just came out. 
Jesus ain't finished with me. But it was funny how uh, Ricky and Lucy would sleep in a separate bed in their house. They're married people sleeping in a separate bed. It was scandalous to show a husband and a wife on TV sleeping in the same room. Isn't that interesting? Have you watched TV lately? Is there a different story on TV? Right? It's different. And we say, well, was that right and wrong then? And is, is it, is, has right and wrong changed? No. Morality has changed because culture's changed. And if morality is based on culture, wherever culture goes, morality goes with it. It's got to be, there has to be a moral code, an ultimate objective authority that comes from without, or outside of humanity. It would be an alien to us, alien outside of us from a whole other world, righteousness that determines what is right and wrong. And this is what God is doing on the mountain. And so in these Ten Commandments, God gives us a moral code by which humanity will be judged. And only a holy God can give absolute morality to what He calls to be a holy nation. Church family. We have the church has began to accept the things that God would call unacceptable. Now listen to me. There is a difference between a sinner with a specific sin walking in the doors of our church saying, I want to worship and know God. And we say, come in, brother or sister. No matter what your past is, no matter what your sin is, you are welcome to worship with us and join us because we all want to know and worship God. Amen? And we want this place to be a safe place for sinners. But there is a standard by which, even though I know that your sin is X, does not mean your sin is acceptable here. Whether your sin is some kind of sexual immorality or your sin is covetousness or greed. We all have sins that we're struggling to overcome and to be more like Jesus. But what we cannot do is make acceptable what God calls unacceptable. I even think one of the prophets said, oh, woe to this nation who calls right wrong and wrong right. Good, evil, and evil, good. There is a standard by which God has given to His people, His church, that we must uphold. I always quote Pastor Samuel with this. The problem is not that, there is the, that the boat, the church, 
is in the water, but rather that the water is in the boat. The problem is not when the boat is in the water, but when the water gets in the boat. And so, church family, we must uphold that which we know to be true. Why? Because God is holy. And we have a whole nother level of accountability to Him. But we must be in the world, not of the world. Okay, so we also see that God is holy and He is jealous. Let's look down just a moment in verse 4. Excuse me, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them. This is commandment number 2. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, this, this verse right here has been taken out of context so many times. That God is jealous? Is He jealous of me? Of course He's not jealous of you. Why would the Creator of the universe be jealous of His creation? He would not. He is not jealous of you, but what does it say? That He is a jealous God. He is jealous for you. That if He alone is Creator and Redeemer, and if He alone is Lawgiver, and if He alone is the supreme authority in this world, then He alone deserves the worship that He alone created us to give. Psalm 29, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. We have been created to worship God and God alone. And to give it to anyone else or anything else means that we miss out on the blessing of giving Him what He rightfully deserves. He is God. There is no other. God, Yahweh, is not one on the list of many little g-gods. Every other little g-god of this world is a false god or a demon, as Paul calls him. But if God is the only true God, and if He's the Creator of all things and the Redeemer of all humanity, then to worship Him and serve Him alone is the best and highest goal to which you and I have been called. He is a jealous God, and He is jealous for our worship. Now, that's a hard thing to say. Because if I said that about me, you would say, that guy's got an ego problem. But God alone can say that because He is holy and righteous and good. He alone is God. And in doing this, in worshiping and serving Yahweh, guess what happens to us? I find ultimate joy, ultimate satisfaction, life abundantly in giving God that which He deserves and desires from us. Some would say, man, it seems very domineering, and God is not inviting us into a domineering relationship. He's inviting us into a relationship that can be ultimately satisfying. And He does that by saying, I'm a jealous God, and I want you to worship me. Some people will see God's law as a fence. Look at me, young people especially. Some people, some uh, th this young generation will see God's law like a fence that is keeping me away from all the joy of this world and the satisfaction of this world and all the good things that this world can offer. And, and so it is hindering me from becoming and being all that I want to be. It's keeping me from being happy. It's keeping me from pleasure. It's keeping me from etc. Whatever it is. But that's not the way that the Bible re reveals God's law to be. It is a fence, but rather it is a fence around a playground 
that God has created for our enjoyment and our pleasure. And if we're going to play on God's playground and there is a highway right next to the playground, we will be in terror, but it's the fence that keeps us safe within the bounds of what He's created for us to experience. I mean, think about how unloving it would be to put the Seneca Baptist Child Development Center's playground right up next to the street, this busy road of Highway 59, and not put a fence around it. How dangerous would that be? And God created us, put us in this world, and He is fencing us in not to keep us from things that would be greater joy, but to keep us safe from that which would steal our joy. Don't you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that they may have life and life abundantly. So the Word of God, the law of God, these commandments are a fence to us, but not a fence to keep us from what is ultimately satisfying, but a fence to keep us in near to what is ultimately satisfying. Say, okay, so the, the law of God is also a way for God to teach His people how they, are for, they, they were to fulfill His calling as a holy nation. So, it teaches us about Him, but it teaches us how to fulfill our calling as a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests. So, just think of these as the values of a holy nation. No other gods. What were all the nations around them? Polytheistic or monotheistic? Polytheistic. And so for the people of Israel to have a, a, a religion, a, a relationship with one God seemed odd to the nations around them. Number two, don't have any images. Don't, you can't carry Elohim around with you. You don't worship me like that. Now, was that different than all the polytheistic nations of the world, the pagan nations of the world? They carried their gods wherever they went. They pulled out their god out of their pocket and said, here he is. Let's worship him. He saved us. And God said, you don't worship me like that. These are the values by which they would live out this holiness among the people. Don't take his name in vain. Now, that doesn't just mean don't use it as a curse word, but they said it well, don't take it in jest, don't make it light, don't make God's name Elohim or Yahweh, don't make it empty, don't make it meaningless among the nations. The Sabbath, now just think about how countercultural the Sabbath was. You're going to work for six days and then you're going to rest one day. So all the Jews, all the people of Israel are resting on the Sabbath day and all the pagan nations around them are working on the Sabbath day and they go, why would you rest when you could work? Because God's told us to. Because we know that He's going to provide for us when we work six days instead of seven. Because we have tested Him. Because we have seen His faithfulness. Because He gave this command to us at creation and this Sabbath rest is good for our souls to remind us to trust in God alone. How, how countercultural was that commandment? Murder, adultery, stealing, bearing false witness, covetousness. They were all just ways to get what I really wanted. And God commanded His people against all these things. And, and so the people of the nations, these pagan nations, are looking at the people of Israel and saying, why don't you just do it? Just kill them and steal what you want. That's not how God created us to live. 
countercultural. Let me teach you to be a holy nation. This is the way of the nations, but not of Yahweh's people. Israel would not be governed by their desires, but they would be governed by their God. Their ultimate source of morality and supreme authority. Okay, so let's look at the, the Ten Commandments kind of together. Overview. There's a description of the law. How do we see them? Okay, first they come in really two tables or two sections. You've got the first four, which are Godward. Okay, let's, let's look at them. Uh, no other gods before me. No idols. Don't take my name in vain. And honor the Lord and His Sabbath. Okay, keep it holy. Those four are Godward. The next six are between God and man. Or, excuse me, man and man. They're manward. So you've got the first four this way, and you've got the last six kind of horizontally. So you see the two tablets of the law, or the two tables of the law. The, the fifth commandment is kind of um, a transition in between the, the, the ones that go vertically and the ones that go horizontally. The fifth one, which is honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother. Why would that be transitional? Because in that culture, fathers and mothers were the authorities of their children. And they communicated what God desired for them to them. So, do you remember when Jesus was asked the question, what is the most important commandment? How did Jesus respond? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, strength. And second, love your neighbor as yourself. What did he just summarize in those two commandments? All of the law. All of the law. Love God, love others, and if you'll do that, you'll fulfill all the law. I think I've got Romans 13, 8 through 10 up on the screen. Romans 13, 8 through 10 says, Owe nothing to any or owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Do you remember when, when Jesus was asked the question by the rich young ruler, what do I do, need to do to inherit eternal life? Do you remember how Jesus responded? He said, what are the commandments? And he named the last six. Honor your father and your mother. Don't murder. Don't steal. Uh, don't lie. Uh, don't commit adultery. Don't covet. And the young, rich young ruler said, all those I've kept. Why didn't he name the first four? Because that was at the heart of the young rich ruler's problem. You have other gods in front of me. He didn't need to list those. Why? Because he was showing, the, showing this young man that he had a heart problem uh, vertically with God. You have idols before me. So we see the law in these two tables. Now, how many of you have ever read the Old Testament and the books of the law like Exodus or Leviticus and you get so bound up in all these commandments and all these laws and uh, do this when this happens, and when you get this skin disease, do this, and, and when, when an ox gores a, another man's ox, you got to do this to the ox, and you got to do this to the owner, and you're going, good gracious, 
and you think about the Pharisees, and they had 613 laws that they were to live by, and you go, whew, that's overwhelming. Have you ever wondered, why is it that Christians don't keep all of those commandments, all of those laws? Did you know that all of us are breaking the law of God today in Exodus, or excuse me, Leviticus chapter 19, which says, don't wear a garment made of two kinds of fabric. Every one of us are in trouble. We all got a polyester blend or something like that on right now. So we're, why, why is it that we don't keep all of those laws? Have you ever wondered? Because if you read chapter 20, uh, verse 22, through basically the end of 23, you're going to hear all these various laws. And you go, whoa, what are those all about? Well, in that section, finishing chapter 20 to 23, most, if not all, of those laws further describe the Ten Commandments. Okay, so what do you do if there's this kind of sexual immorality among you? What do you do if a man steals? How do you worship and have one God? Why, how do you not have a graven image? They summarize those Ten Commandments and add to those Ten Commandments and teach us to live in a covenant relationship with God. But here's the thing that we need to understand. In the Old Testament, there were three types of laws. Three types of laws. There were moral laws. There were, there were ceremonial laws. And there were civil laws. Moral laws are the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. These are the way that God has said that I will uh, hold you accountable. These are the way that you live. These are moral laws. These are what I will judge you by. Moral laws. The second one are ceremonial laws. These ceremonial laws are how you worship. What makes you clean? What makes you unclean? What would prevent you from going into the tabernacle to worship or the temple to worship. Okay, so these ceremonial laws. And so if I am unclean, then how do I get clean so that I can go into worship? And those are things like touching a dead person or uh, menstrual periods or clothes made of two kinds of materials or skin conditions. Those were ceremonial laws. Examples of moral laws were things like homosexuality and all other kinds of sexually immoral behavior. Exodus 21 talks about a number of different scenarios of manslaughter. If somebody is killed, what do we do with that? Exodus 22 describes the different kinds of stealing. And what do we do with that? So moral laws are binding on humanity for all time, in all places. Ceremonial laws, like what makes me clean... Why don't we keep those? Why, don't, why haven't you slaughtered a pigeon lately? Why are we not worried about our clothes being made of two kinds of fabric or thread? Why are we not worried about that? Okay, so then three, civil laws. So we got moral, ceremonial, and civil. Civil laws were laws by which the nation of Israel were governed by. They were governed by. So if somebody steals, like Laura said, they got no thumbs, right? If somebody steals, what do you do? How do you punish that person? How do you govern? If somebody commits adultery, what do you do? How do you govern that people? So, moral, ceremonial, civil. They were the laws by which the nation of Israel were governed. 
laws, laws and penalties, punishments and restitutions, civil laws. So when Jesus came in Matthew chapter 5, he said this phrase, he said, I think we've got it on the screen, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to what them? Fulfill them. Fulfill them. So the question is asked of us again, then why don't we keep all the laws if they weren't abolished? He goes on to say, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So why do we not keep the ceremonial laws about making us clean and unclean? Why? Because Jesus has fulfilled them. Do you want to know what makes you clean and unclean and able to go into the house to worship? Jesus' blood. He makes us clean through His blood. He tore the curtain and gave access to enter boldly into the throne room before the presence of a holy God because He is the spotless sacrifice. And on top of that, He is the great high priest that offers the spotless sacrifice that purifies the sinful person with the blood of the Lamb. He mediates for us, there he, for He has fulfilled the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament for those who would place their faith in Christ. Are you with me, church? Isn't that good news? Why don't we live according to the civil laws? Because we are Gentiles living outside of the land of Israel. That's why Romans chapter 13 would say we should be subject to the governing authorities of our country. For they have been established by God. Another conversation, another day. But the ten, the perfect ten, the perfect ten, it's going to be in your head all afternoon. The moral law is binding on humanity as a representation of God's perfect holiness to us and for us to live by them as a holy nation unto God. And we can summarize them by loving God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and loving our neighbor as we do ourselves. The problem that happens in Israel and the problem that's happened in God's church today is that there's little distinction between His people and pagan nations. There's little difference between his, these people, his people and pagan nations. I asked this question a few weeks ago on Wednesday night. If you were to be held on trial as a Christian in one of these countries that it's illegal to be a Christian, if you were to be held on trial you were to go before the judge and witnesses were to come, would they have enough evidence to convict you? Or would they say, well, he lives just like us, but calls himself a follower of Jesus? Okay, last thing, the purpose of the law, and then I'll quit. Now, many view the, the law as a means to salvation, a means by which they can be righteous. And if you see the law as a means of salvation, a means of, of a way you could be righteous, you are in big trouble. Big trouble. The problem, problem with that is if you think your good's going to outweigh your bad, it will never. That kind of life will never bring you freedom and joy. 
thinking that you can earn your own way or that you can earn your own righteousness. That's why Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I say to you, if you call your brother a fool and you hate him in your heart, you've already committed murder. Whoa, Jesus. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Jesus did not come to lower the bar of the Ten Commandments, but He came to raise the bar and show us that we cannot earn our own way. It's not about legal versus illegal here. It's rather about if we're going to try to live our lives by the law to earn our place in heaven, the only requirement is perfection. And James chapter 2, verse 10 says, For whoever would keep the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. The purpose of the law was not to save you, but to imprison you. Church family, I, I'm almost done, I promise. You've probably never heard a preacher say the law was given to imprison you. It was given to imprison you under sin. Follow me. I'm, just, I'm, I'm not going to be the commentary. I want the Bible to be the commentary. Galatians chapter 3, verse 21 says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law imprisons us and shows us our need for a Savior. Romans chapter 9, verse 30 to 32 say, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that's by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on work. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. The scripture is to imprison us. The law is to imprison us. To show us our need for a savior. And it points us to Jesus. And I'll end with this passage. Romans chapter 8 verses 1 to 4. says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. How? For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do. How did God do that? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. In other words, why did Jesus? Why was it necessary for Jesus to live a sinless life? Because He fulfilled the law for you. Why was it necessary for Jesus to die on a Roman cross, a sinner's death? Because that's what we deserved. So on the cross, Jesus took what we deserved, and in His life, 
he fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law and that by faith in Jesus, we might be saved. The law was not given to give you a pattern for life, but rather show you your need for Christ. You don't get into heaven by being a good person. Hell's going to be filled with a lot of good people. You get into heaven by trusting in Jesus. So maybe you're out there today and you say, Ryan, I've never trusted in Christ. I've been trying to make it on my own. I've been trying to keep all the commandments so that I could get into heaven. And I just want to encourage you today, that's a, an endless mousetrap. You'll get on that wheel and you'll just run it and run it and run it like a gerbil wheel and you can never get off that thing until you're wore out. And you'll never get anywhere. But Jesus made a way of escape. He died. He lived sinlessly to fulfill the law. The righteous requirement of the law. He died a sinner to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. So that we might be saved through faith. So friend... If you're out there, you've never trusted him, trust him today. If you're out there and maybe you've forgotten about the grace of Jesus, you started in grace, but you've ended up in works, run back to grace. Remember, we do keep the commandments, but not so that we might earn salvation, but that we might be holy with him. Would you stand with me? Maybe today you need to make a confession of faith. You need to trust in Jesus. You need to ask Him to be your Lord and your Savior. Maybe you need to rededicate your life to Christ. Maybe you need to make the step and join in the church. And if you'd like to do that, today is your day. As we sing, you move. Let me pray for us. Father, move by Your Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives through the preaching of Your Word. And might we see that we can't, but Jesus did. And trust it. Lead us this morning in Christ's name and for His glory. Amen.